Hello there. Welcome to Peripheral Thinking, a series of conversations with entrepreneurs, advisors, activists and academics intending to inspire, maybe challenge you with ideas from the margins of the periphery. Why? Because that's where the ideas that will shape tomorrow are hiding today, on those margins, the periphery. This week, I spoke to Ruth Anslow. Ruth is uh, a truly inspiring entrepreneur and activist. She believes strongly that business can be a force for good and is living that out in the very real world of creating a supermarket to take on the supermarkets. I hope you enjoy the conversation this week with Ruth. Ruth, welcome to Peripheral Thinking. Thanks for having me on here, Ben. Thank you. Um, so actually, there's a little, there's a there's a few kind of Brighton businesses who are um, I've had the the good fortune of, of speaking to uh, the last few days, uh, of, of seemingly all via a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Vicky, uh, who runs Fugu PR, which I think is one of the great connectors of the world. And Vicky suggested you because maybe just give us a little bit of overview of what you're doing now, uh, and we'll come back to that in more detail. But good to just understand a little bit of what you're you're up to these days. Yeah, sure. So I'm, um, you know, passionately committed to transforming business for good and um, think we need to go around making new frameworks for business that work for the future. And in that in that spirit, I um, set about reinventing supermarkets with my sister. That was in 2010 and co-founded a business called Hisby, Hisby Food. And we're on a mission to create transformation in the food industry by reinventing how supermarkets do business. And I also co-founded a business called The Good Business Club with my friend Sarah Osterholzer. And that's very much about helping people who want to run or support businesses like that get together and work on it together. So you've given birth to a, to a supermarket. Yes, uh, <laughs> it's my baby. <laughs> yeah, that is no small undertaking. No, no. It's a bit bonkers, I know, but then... There you have it. That's what it. I, that's what it takes. You know, we've got to be uh, a bit bonkers, and naivety is incredibly important to getting anything done. So Amy and I were fully qualified to um, to get on with it. Full power to the naive. I think that there's there's goodness in that. So um, maybe just take us back a little bit. So you weren't always giving birth to supermarkets. There was a, there was a time there was a time pre supermarkets. What did that look like for you? Well, I suppose it all started when I was 12 or 13 and I decided I wanted to be a businesswoman. And I didn't know really what that meant, but I thought, oh, they earn loads of money, drive nice cars, have good hair and good shoes, and I want that. So um, that set me on the path of GCSEs and A-levels and university, and I was very focused on getting into the world of business. And with the degree I did, that meant going through a four-year course, doing international business, which I loved, and then applying for all the big corporates. That was what we were funneled into. So we were either going for big FMCG companies like Cadbury Schweppes, as it was, and Unilever and Procter & Gamble, or banks, Deutsche Bank, etc., or KPMG and Arthur Anderson, as it was then, consulting. So, yeah, I was funneled into that. And I got onto the Unilever graduate scheme. And I was there for four years in marketing and sales roles negotiating a lot with the big supermarkets. That was my first insight to how that world runs. And then I was another 10 years at Sara Lee, quite a big deal in the world of air fresheners, even if I say so myself. Um, and yeah, so I had that 14-year career in sales and marketing, very commercial roles, met some great people, learned some great stuff, but got to the point where it just 
something was missing. So like, obviously we often sort of talk about these sort of moments as like, because I know from my own sort of story, in the retelling of them, we can sort of imagine these things as quite sort of clean, quite sort of linear, uh, and the, the the kind of process is sort of smooth. But I, I kind of know the reality of like my own journey. Actually, that transition of going from one track to another actually was quite messy, and also kind of rumbled along for quite a long time. And I was kind of curious how hey, that 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 sort of seed, that wish to be doing something different. How long was that sort of growing? Do you think? I think you're right. I think all the best things in life are a bit messy. And so it's kind of changing your path. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a clear moment. There were several moments of realisation and thought and going, hang on a minute. I don't think this is right for me. Um, And um, then there was a moment of epiphany where they came together. And then I started talking with my sister and she was having the same thing. So yeah, there was probably an 18-month period. There was sort of 2000 and... 9 2010 where it came together but yeah there'd been a series of thoughts and experiences that got me got me looking at what I was doing because I was basically on a path that I'd chosen when I was 12 <laughs> uh, which is quite, it's what we do you know you're either put on a path by your parents and you follow that or you decide young and you follow that and until you intervene nothing changes but yeah, there was just a moment. There was a moment I remember because I was an expat in Barcelona, had a beautiful flat, loads of money. I was on the balcony looking at the sea and having carb, drinking carver. And I just had a crashing moment of realisation that I wasn't happy. But I'd done all the things that I was supposed to do. Um, and I realised, you know, work's a big part of my job and my, my identity. I just wasn't fulfilled and there was a sense of meaning missing. And that I realised in that moment, that's what I needed. I needed to build in a sense of meaning if I was going to work for another 30, 40, however many years. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're, but they're, yeah, there were lots of little thoughts and incidents and conversations that led up to that. And then after that moment, there was a year before I made any moves. I started researching. So I knew in that moment, I can't do this anymore for these reasons. And um, I started to think and shape what I did want to be and what I did want to do slowly and I you know did a lot of reading did a lot of research started talking to people outside of the corporate world and um put together kind of what my values were and what I actually wanted to do and talked a lot with my sister who was also she had a very different career but was also dissatisfied at that point and unfulfilled right I mean how did you know what you wanted to do I looked out for things that I could identify with and when I came across, I'd always admired Anita Roddick and the Body Shop. And when I came across her books, I got really into those. And I started reading Joanna Blythman as well. And Joanna talks about injustices in the food industry and the proliferation of big globalised brands and businesses in the food industry and what that's done to the food industry. So I, when I, when I think when you pick up something that resonates, you really feel it. So I really resonated with the idea of creating a business that had purpose and meant something in the world other than just basically making money, which is what Anita did. And I resonated with let's tackle an injustice. You know, let's look at some of this stuff. I'd come up against a lot of stuff in the industry around food that I didn't think was right. These little moments of realisation of what goes on. And so, yeah, I think you need to, you know, there's nothing unless you make space to think and feel there's nothing new that's going to come. 
So I made space and I started looking around me and I'd pick up things and resonate with some of them. And then through that exercise and through talking with Amy, really got clear on, oh, I want to be a social entrepreneur. I want to be in business. I want to build a brand that stands for something. I want to uh, transform the world for the better, leave something better behind. We're here for a short time. And to me, um, I want to make a difference. I know not everyone does and that's fine, but... I think that the people that do have a little knocking on a door in a cupboard inside them and they ignore the knocking and they ignore the knocking and then one day they have to open the door or they ignore the knocking forever, you know? So I was just opening that door. And yeah, and that's when Amy and I started designing what our vision was, what we wanted to create. And out of that, months later, came the idea of doing supermarkets. And were you doing all of that while you were working? Yeah, so I was in quite a unique position, Ben, because what had happened is... Um, our division of the business at Sarah Lee was being bought by Procter & Gamble. And we had 18 months notice, you know, this is going to happen. It's a long way out, but it was very well managed, I must say, in terms of a takeover um, or an acquisition, you know, is the correct word. So, you know, we had 18 months notice and I knew at that point that I didn't want to go and work with Procter & Gamble because I wanted to get out of FMCG and start my own thing but I didn't know what it looked like. But I had a, quite a good period then of where we were, we didn't have loads to do because, you know, they were devolving responsibility from what we were doing and we, you know, were preparing handover presentations and things, but it was probably the slowest period I'd ever had at work. And so I had space um, to think and didn't have to be, you know, working at 120%, 100 miles an hour. So that was very lucky. And I also knew at the end of that period, I would get a payout. I would, you know, if I left, I would get reasonably well compensated. And then Amy came out to live with me for a while. So she'd been living in Manchester and she was also, for her own reasons, feeling this sense of lack of meaning. And I said, look, you know, she was due to renew her lease. And then she, I just said, look, come out and live with me. And we did. We just lived in my flat and started just, figuring stuff out and what and we wrote the values and we figured out what we wanted to do. I had all these great ideas and how are we going to transform the food industry? What does it mean? We started researching the issues. So we got really in depth into the problem before we as and we developed the solution over time. If you'd asked your twelve year old self or maybe go to the eleven year old self before you decided about the shoes and the hair and the job and all that sort of stuff. Is there a thread back that kind of made food the thing or is it just food was a useful outlet for this will to activism, for want of a better word? Um, we grew up in poverty and food was, you know, frozen food from bee jams and not much of it. And we know what it's like to go hungry. And, and so I'd always been a bit a really into food, but I didn't know how to cook or chop a vegetable till I went to uni. Um, so I had odd, this odd relationship of no, there not being enough food, being hungry quite a lot. And over time, just loving food and getting really into it. And the more money I got, the, I spent spare money on food, basically. It's amazing that I'm not a lot bigger than I am because um, I eat like a horse. But anyway, I'm going off track. The point was that um, I started to learn in the food industry how the supermarkets have commoditized food and started engineering the goodness out of it. And it really freaked me off. So particularly chicken pies. I did a TED talk and I talked about chicken pies. But So I've trotted this story out a few times, forgive me. But um, I found out, um, you know, I was waiting for my buyer in one of the big supermarkets, foyers, and he came bounding down the steps, really excited, which never happened, ever. And he, um, 
he said, I'd just come out this really inspiring meeting about chicken pies. And I'm like, wow, that sounds interesting. Then you really like interested. And he said, we, we've realized we can save millions because the chicken in the chicken pies is just too good. So the supplier had been putting grade A chicken in economy chicken pies. And they discovered this and realized that they could make the supplier switch grade and charge the same to the consumer and pay less for the pies. But eventually, basically, they were downgrading the quality of the food. And I'd grown up on frozen chicken pies. And it was just this moment of, oh, my God, that's what people on low incomes have to put up with. That deep degradation of chicken. And it happened a lot in the 90s. This um, category management where they go into whole categories like quiches. It happened with quiches. It happened with pizzas. They're going in and substituting good food ingredients for cheap stuff. That's basically cheap fats and chemicals and products that aren't really food. You know, swapping cheese for analog cheese, swapping uh, butter for odd vegetable fat derivatives. And you end up with a product where the value has been engineered out of it. And that's how they make food cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So whilst they're making it cheaper, they're also engineering the goodness out of it. And that had really started to get to me. And I know what these big supermarkets do to their suppliers as well. You know, I've been working at some of the biggest suppliers in the world, global brands, and I knew how they treated us. And that was bad enough, you know, but you find out how they treat smaller suppliers that really, really depend on them. And that's not good. So, you know, I got this sense of injustice of what was going on in the food industry quite deeply. And then my sister had uh, decided she was going to move from Manchester to Brighton and she was going to do something different. And she um, found this um, coffee company called Aromo. And it was the first time we'd found a social enterprise, like a live example of one. And basically, it well, Aromo comes from Ethiopia, which is some of the best coffee in the world. And these guys had come over from Ethiopia. They were bringing in coffee direct from their mates back in Ethiopia, grinding it in Manchester, made it into a brand and using the money to send their kids to school and send back home. Brilliant. So anyway, she decided she was going to sell that on a market stall. And we froze our tits off one, one, one winter in the marina selling coffee on a market stall. But anyway, it was there that we started talking about the origin and how it was made, how it was made, how it was sold, how it was traded. And I coined the phrase, that's just coffee how it should be. And, you know, we started looking at what it means to customers and, you know, what it means to the supply chain. And then we were like, imagine if there was a shop where everything you bought was just how it should be. And that's where it came from. That's what Hisby stands for. And that's where the idea started. Again, it was little seeds of ideas that built over time. And when we knew we'd hit something, we knew we'd hit something. Because it just felt right. It felt like I've got this weird, freaky philosophy about ideas. I feel like transformational ideas are out there in the ether somewhere and we plug into them. And we are vessels for them and to make them come out and be in the world. And I always felt like Amy and I were plugging into something, but like the frequency wasn't always clear. An idea would come and we'd work on it, but we just kind of felt at a visceral level when it was right. And this is what we're supposed to be doing. And this is what's going to make a difference. And it just felt right. Yeah. So it is a felt response, a felt recognition. Yeah. But, you know, looking at it, I know that Amy and I are both the same personality type, very driven by, 
gut feel and instinct and you know another personality type would probably approach it differently but that's how it occurs to us and that's how we created his beat together right at the beginning and so the thing i, I like that phrase you used earlier about the, the, the there's there's something knocking inside the cupboard an idea knocking inside the cupboard a kind of a will to do something different and in a way there's some sort of journey going on that knocking is a search for that transformative idea that you can channel Exactly. And something that creates personal meaning and satisfaction for us as well. So, you know, we were we wanted to create a business. We wanted to be working for ourselves, doing something of value and meeting our own needs with it. You know, our own needs to be independent, be autonomous, be out there in the community. You know, I'd lived quite a solitary life, really. And I had loads of mates. And but I was basically getting up early, going to my job, very long hours, long weekends, and coming back, woofing down some dinner, going to the gym, you know, and well, going to the gym, I make it sound like I did that a lot. I didn't do that. <laughs> I mean, I went to the gym. <laughs> I mean, I went a couple of times to the gym. I had a membership. Yeah, I, yeah, sorry about that. I don't know what I'm thinking. Um, but um, yeah, it was a solitary life. And I was very just own was only socializing with my uni mates, who I love, and they're still, you know, my best mates and other corporate people in the corporate world. But when you open a shop, well, one of the things we loved about working on Hisby, even before we opened the shop, is that you get into the community and you're talking to customers or potential customers and you're talking to people who are trading on that road and you're talking to counsellors and community groups and people who care about stuff in the community. And it's just much more real than being stuck in a room with a load of people with a BSC and an interest in globalising air fresheners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 so so what so that 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 um the the kind of the birthing the supermarket elephant gestation period you're talking there about you know speaking to counselors being in community what did that journey look like so basically um i um took my redundancy in august 2010 moved back from barcelona and amy and i moved into a flat in brighton and thought right we need to get on with this and constituted the company and clarified our values and got clear on the bit, started writing a business plan, started, we'd never been on Twitter. I mean, Twitter was quite new then, believe it or not. We were on Twitter, on Facebook, creating a brand, creating a blog, doing all the things. But it took us nearly three years to open the store, which at the time we never would have believed if anyone had told us. But it it just, it took a long time to create the sourcing policies, to find the right premises, to build a business plan that could stand up on its own two feet and create the brand and engage people. And there was it was a long run-up. The hardest thing was finding the right premises. I think if, we, if we'd found the right premises a year earlier, we would have opened a year earlier, but it was really driven by the premises. But a lot going on. And also we had to find Jack. Jack's the third founder, Jack Simmons. He is the third director and he found us in 2013 just after we got the keys to the shop and he is if we're like we're out there yellow type personalities he's an architect of idea you know he's one of those people who's brilliant at taking ideas and making it work and building processes and ways for things to happen so you know he joined us a few months before the shop opened and he took our sourcing policies and found all the suppliers and built the, the bricks of it and we needed to find we needed to find us and that you know that's why it took so long because that key person needed to go through what they were going through to find us 
we got a keys to the shop in April. We had about 15 grand in the bank and we needed 230. <laughs> so that was a challenge. And then Jack came along, I think, in the August and we opened in the December. So it all happened quite quickly from that point. But yeah, it was scary signing the lease because you're signing it in your own name. You know, and Amy and I had signed up to this 15-year lease and we didn't have enough money to fit out the shop. <laughs> so then we did a crowdfunder because we kept, you know, we got our business plan out there to a lot of people. And some people in in the world of real food and farming were very helpful, gave us lots of good advice. And we took it to banks to get, you know, free sort of high street advice. And it was clear that banks weren't going to lend us the money. And we did this crowdfunder to build some excitement around it and to... um Proof that there was interest in it, proof of concept, and create a customer base. That was in the April. Shortly after we got the keys, we basically did a video where we stood in the shop going, look at this. We're going to turn this into Brighton's ethical supermarket, I think I think was the phrase we used at the time. And this is what we're doing. That's what we're doing. If you're interested, buy vouchers. And people bought money off vouchers for a shop that didn't exist yet, which still makes me giggle a bit. But People liked the concept and we raised 30 grand that way. What, what was the concept that was resonating with people? What was that, the kernel, the idea, the seed? It was about creating alternative to the big supermarkets. So, you know, having something that was on London Road, which is quite a, was quite a scrappy part of town. You know, we weren't talking about being in the lanes or, you know, the people could see we were trying to be accessible. And just creating an alternative to the big supermarkets and people hook into different things. So a lot of people like what we do because they like the idea of supporting local farmers and suppliers. Most of our fresh food is local from Sussex. Or they like the idea that we pay fairly and we pay the real living wage and we pay suppliers the prices they ask for. Or they like the idea that some of it was packaging free. Or, you know, people hooked into different elements of it. But really, I think that what underscored it, it was a different type of supermarket. And we were the rebel supermarket. We didn't use that phrase in our branding for three more years, but we were rebelling against how a supermarket is. We, you know, instead of how it is, we're how it should be. So essentially, by buying from his B, of course, then I'm able to kind of share in that rebel rebel idea. Do you think is that a kind of core part of what keeps people coming now? Yeah, I mean, it is. I think that there are there are people who are very values-led, especially in Brighton. There's a core group of people who are values-led and come to us for those reasons. But others just come for convenience. And now we have a, a shop in, in Worthing as well. Um, and Worthing's a very different town to Brighton. And, you know, in Worthing, they're less activist-y, they're less into rebellion and that sort of vibe. They're, but they're really into... Um, independent businesses, supporting local suppliers, very much into local economy. And so, you know, there's examples there of two shops where you've got customers who are driven by different things. But there's overlap. There's In both cities, there's a big group of people who want vegan food or they want um, plastic-free options. They want to be able to buy stuff loose. So it's hard to generalise, but I would say that the idea of rebellion is not for everyone. And a lot of people just see us as a kind of a practical alternative because they are fed up with the way big supermarkets are. Yeah. 
I mean, how important is the convenience aspect? Like you were talking about your location in Brighton. So there is a convenient thing. It's like, oh, I'm walking past. I need something. There's an opportunity. There's somewhere to get something. So I go in. I mean, what? How, how kind of important on a sort of on the some sort of arbitrary scale is that? In supermarkets, it's the number one driver of customer behaviour. Yet people go to what's on their doorstep. And it takes something to get someone to walk past a supermarket to go to a different one. So that's part of our job. So our part of our job is to offer something that big supermarkets can't do or won't do so that some people walk past them to come to us. And it's important for us to be located near to big supermarkets for that reason. And our hope, of course, is that we're part of creating a shift towards going outside and thinking a bit more outside convenience being the key driver. And some people are on that journey and other people aren't. Uh, And I'm curious, so the extent to which what you're doing is getting the attention of the supermarkets? Uh, Yeah, yeah. They know who we are because um, I've still got friends in FMCG and I know we're talked about in boardrooms as an example. Well, they see us as very niche and cute, of course. Uh, They don't understand that we're working on growing from cute to dangerous. Um, they, uh, they'll see it at some point. So, you know, for example, a few years ago, we were invited uh, by M&S. They were holding a week called Retail Futures or something. And they, they asked us to come along and present our journey and what we do. And we've had the person who was heading up sustainability and ethics in Waitrose gave us a call and we had a meeting with him. Um, they're interested. Um, and then Carrefour, you know, Carrefour brought together their top European team for a regional meeting and invited us in as on part of the agenda to share what we do in our vision. So we're on the radar and we're reported on, you know, we've appeared in different industry reports and investment reports by by Barclays Bank, by Social Enterprise UK, um, talked about by Unreasonable as a breakthrough model. And um, the Ethical Consumer magazine, I don't know if you know the Eth- Ethical Consumer Organization, they're amazing. They're going for decades and they research in depth. They're going to product categories and research in depth the brands behind them, and then they rank and score them on their ethical practices. Everything from um, the way they treat people to where they invest their money. And so you can go into the ethical consumer and look up anything from coffee to mobile phones, you know. And we use that in our sourcing policies because we only um, list brands that score 10 or more on the ethical consumer index. But anyway, the point is that the ethical consumer ranks as number two ethical supermarket in the country. And that gets noticed. So we score, I think it's 12 out of 14, and Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda and Morris's all score three or less. Obviously, they're big scale brands that score very low because they're not working on these things. And then we're the other end of the spectrum, very small, but showing that it is possible to run a supermarket another way. The, the challenge, of course, is a convenience behaviour change, right? So how you get somebody to do something different to the track which is laid down in their mind, of course. So you're kind of wrestling with this in a really super real way about, you know, whether somebody chooses to turn right into your shop, left into your shop, or keep walking. But of course, this is a challenge for so many people. How do you actually get people to to make a different behaviour, to act in a different way? Well, we kind of got five USPs, if you like, that we do that others don't. And people generally gravitate to us for one of those reasons or walk, they'll walk past Aldi for one of those reasons. Uh, what, the first one's local. You know, we we have 53% of our fresh produce is from Sussex. 
all the cakes and treats on our takeaway coffee bar are, are locally baked. And, you know, we've got a big focus on supporting local producers. It's really important to create food systems where we we foster local economy. And then the second thing is kind of ethics-led. Anyone who's interested in that idea of ethical brands, to step, we don't do the big brands. You know, we don't sell Mars bars and pot noodles. It's all the best alternative that we can find in those product categories. So, you know, ethics-led and we're, we're endorsed and validated by external marks and certifications is the word I'm looking for, like social enterprise mark and uh, the ethical consumer. And then, then the third one is sustainability. So we really have a lot of great practices like never throwing away food that can be eaten. We really take our sustainable options seriously. We're looking for brands that truly deliver that and think about that. And, and it's difficult because there's so much about the food systems that's, that's not sustainable that won't be around in 50 years time or shouldn't be. The fourth thing is low waste. So we recycle or responsibly dispose of anything in the shop. I think our recycling rate is 90%. And that's really, really unusual. We're preventing waste by selling stuff loose and out of plastic and allowing people to bring their own containers. And then the fifth thing is community spirit. And you don't get any of these five things in a regular supermarket. And you don't get, you walk in and someone knows your name or someone says hi, or, you know, you just get people who are undervalued and underpaid, behaving like they're undervalued and underpaid in a lot of cases, you know, doing their best, but they're really overworked and, you know, they're not very well respected and they're underpaid. So, you know, that doesn't foster great customer experience. So, yeah, that community vibe, uh, you go in there and you might see someone you know and the sense of being part of it all, that's important. So those are the things that would draw someone into our shop as opposed to one of the big supermarkets that might be closer to them. How are you How are you communicating all of those things? So we use social media to communicate those five USPs visually and explaining, you know, when it, it's Plastic Free July, for example, showing off what we do in those five areas. Sometimes it's just a funny picture of someone holding a massive leak. You know, it's that. Um, and then um, we reach out a lot. I do a lot of talks. I do podcasts. I try and spread the word of, as much as we can about what we do. But we don't have great big marketing and branding budgets to really get the message out there like Oatly style. That's what I would love to do. I'd love to be going Oatly style and, you know, doing kind of game changer communication, which is something I'm thinking about at the moment. But we would need to put money into that. We've just come out of COVID and it's been in survival mode for two years. So I don't think we get the message out about what we do enough. And I would love to change that. Because yeah, there's a, there's a there's like a sort of confluence of things, isn't there? There's like getting those messages out to the people who are walking past. Yeah, <laughs> you know, on some sort of journey, essentially, where so it's those two things together, isn't it? You know, that's the, the sort of sweet spot. Yeah, that's right. It's finding those people, and you know, on my experience of trying to market in the last two years with everyone just not not you know they're not interested. They've not been interested. They've been focused on homeschooling kids, working from home trying to keep mind, body and soul together, you know, and getting through COVID and all the pressures of it. They're not, they've not been interested. So it's been hard to cut through. And, you know, at the moment we're looking at how we can come out swinging with a really strong message, but it needs money. And we're looking at it at the moment and how to raise money for all that stuff. So Hisby is a social enterprise, is that right? So what does that mean sort of in practice for 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 what you are and how you do it? Well, you know, when Amy and I were figuring out how to set up the business back in 2010, 
we were kind of thinking, okay, what we need to do is encode the values in the business and make sure that it's values and vision led, you know, that it's always that way and that it's built that way from the inside out. And then we looked around and went, oh, that's called a social enterprise. And yeah, it basically makes sure that the the mission is baked into what you're doing and the values are very clearly running through the business. And, you know, there's practical things that make sure you get the right investors in. So, you know, we're a CIC, which is a community interest company, and we can sell shares in our company, but there's a cap on the return they can make over time and in dividends. And that's just sensible because what that means is, is you're not going to get VCs coming in, giving you 2 million and wanting it back three years later. You know, it's, it's that kind of integrity and alignment with the the right kind of investors. It sends it sends a big signal to investors and partners that we want to collaborate with about what we mean. So yeah, in the day-to-day operating of the store, it just means that we are thinking with our values as well as money and they're equally important. And sometimes you have to weigh one up against another a bit. Something like COVID tests that. Um, but yeah, other than that, because we've always been a social enterprise, we don't really think about operating as one. <laughs> you know, we just are. But, you know, right, for example, right from the beginning, we paid the real living wage. Staff got the Living Wage Foundation real living wage and whatever age they are, whether they're 21 or 51 or whatever. And that's really important. And suppliers set their own terms and you know there are things that we've done from the beginning that we've always done so I don't think of them as different anymore but a lot of it's about where the money goes as well so you know when you spend a pound at a big supermarket they keep only 5p in the local economy big supermarkets there they centralize and export profit um but when you spend a pound at Hisby 58p stays in the local economy we spend it with local service providers and suppliers and staff and that's very key for future models of business. We need to get a lot more localised, our business thinking, in my opinion. So, you know, those are the things that go hand in hand with us being a social enterprise. If we didn't care about that stuff, we wouldn't have bothered being a social enterprise. Our prices would be a lot higher. We'd pay staff a lot less. We'd screw down suppliers and we'd behave very differently. Uh, but yeah, but kind of so writing a lot of that stuff into the articles and kind of particularly around sort of distribution of profit kind of lends a, a really good, clear focus to what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. And you get what you measure, you know, alongside the financial measures, we measure um, how much plastic we save by selling stuff loose, uh, how many plastic bottles we save from landfill, um, how much of our stuff is local. We have all these other measures that that go alongside, you know, what how our, our brands rank on the ethical consumer, that go alongside our non-social enterprises reporting. Picking up a lovely phrase that you used earlier, your ambition is to move from the cute to the dangerous. And, and so I'm curious, what does cute to dangerous look like for you guys? Yeah, people have always thought we're cute, me and Amy and our little business and our brand and our little shop. That's fine, but that's not what we set out to do. So we've set out to disrupt and create transformation in the food industry. So when I say dangerous, I mean creating a true threat to to supermarkets. So that, you know, instead of kind of looking at us as a bit of a niche curiosity, they get that there's a movement out there called localised food systems, which needs to happen for the future of food, and that it's very real and that they're not positioned to deliver that. And that there's there's people in the market who are delivering it and will grow. 
So yeah, it's that shop, our shop or shops like ours appear on every high street. And when you start talking about that kind of scale, it's dangerous. So, you know, for example, you know, the, the food and drink market's worth £120 billion a year and it's dominated by the, the big supermarkets, obviously. They've all got double-digit share. And if you captured only a quarter of a percent of that market, you'd have a £500 million brand and 250 shops. That's dangerous. And that's what we're setting out to do. It's easy for people to get disheartened when they're trying to take on something which clearly has such a huge fucking amount of power as entrenched supermarket interest, right? Because there is money, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of systems which reinforce each other, which keep that status quo as it is. But of course, you know, the thing with all of these sorts of change, actually, there is also vulnerability kind of built into it. And like sand underneath the foundations... If connections are starting to be made between pioneers and people like yourself who are working towards an alternative vision, which is around this kind of more localized systems, the disproportionate voice that you would get through making connections, through bringing people together. So these kind of things happening on on high streets up and down the country, even as one or two little sort of things to start with, you know, relatively quickly, you would have thought you start to become actually quite an inconvenience for the purveyors of the convenience store. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there are too many supermarkets in the market. And it wouldn't surprise me if in the next 10 years, one of them fell over or, you know, didn't make it. They're always buying each other's out or bits of each other anyway, because they're so oversaturated and they're all doing the same thing. There's very little brand differentiation, with the exception maybe of Waitrose, who do manage to create something a bit different. So, yeah, is there room in the market for all of the, the the massive amount of sameness that we've got going on? Or will people demand more and get to see that there, more is possible? One of the other things I noticed for some research I was doing a few months ago, there's the same number of food banks in the country as there are Tesco supermarkets. Yeah. Which is, and the point around that is there is a shockingly high number of food banks. Uh, and so, yeah, it's not the other way around, you know. Yeah, that's a very sad indictment on the failures in food. And that's, well, it's it's connected to so much. There's also to do with poverty wages and, you know, other things. But the supermarkets have got a responsibility there. Are they going to start addressing some of this stuff or continue to see it as not their business? And I think they're starting to plan all their surplus food into some of these things, which is great. Big deal. They throw away so much food. And, you know, they could do so much more. I mean, they make billions and billions in profit. It's not all from food. You know, there's non-food there. There's also a lot of money that comes from property. You know, Tesco, massive property holders, these businesses are. But at what point do you step in and go, no, this is part of a problem that we've helped to make? If you're, you know, if you're degrading the value of food and taking goodness out of food, you're filling people's stomachs with stuff that doesn't serve them and isn't nutritious and undercharging them for crap and creating health problems and selling them fizzy drinks and all the stuff that you want to sell them because it's more profitable for you, you're part of the problem. Because, you know, if people are well-fed, they would act and be very different. So there's a, they, they just absolved themselves of responsibility and created lots of problems for public health 
in the way they market and, and the way the business models work. The business models are all about short-term profit, which means let's screw as much as we can out of the customer and the supplier and degrade the quality of food that we, we can get more and more and more and more and more. And overcharge for good food. That's a whole other issue. Overcharging for good food. Oh, God, now you've got me started. Um, you know, CO2 emissions. We need to, as we all know, drastically reduce these by 2030 before we pass the point of no return. And a third of CO2 emissions created by the food industry. 95% of where people buy food is the supermarkets. So, you know, there's, there's a direct impact from their business model is to create enormous amounts of carbon dioxide and pollution and environmental damage as well as making bad food normal that is a problem so yeah sorry i've gone off on one but the point is that if the food system worked properly as it needs to and as it should we wouldn't need food banks anyway hand in hand with addressing other levers of poverty and of course wages is a big one of those and access to education it's a huge thing it's shame on the food industry. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you took a fraction of the profit that they were making, you could basically give an allowance. It was a, a fact packet calculation I was doing. You just took a fraction of the profit that the supermarkets were making on UK operations. You could give a credit to such an enormous number of people who are currently having to get food from a food bank to get food from a supermarket. And pay your staff properly. Because, you know, the thing with food banks, people think it's uh, people on no income. No, it's working people. It, you know, most people using food banks are working. They're just not paid properly. And supermarkets are, are employing a lot of people throughout the supply chain and not paying them properly. Um, there was a big thing in the, um, the news recently where the chairman of Sainsbury's rejected implementing the real living wage and put his own bloody salary up three times or something. It's a system eating itself. Ruth, thank you very much. Where can people find more? Yeah, um, follow us on social media. Um, Hisby is Hisby Food on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I bang on about this stuff a lot on LinkedIn. Come and find us. And our website is hisby.co.uk. And come into our stores and make up your own mind and see what you think. Ruth, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you talking to us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on here. A real pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ruth. If you liked it and you think other people might like it, please do the good and honourable thing and share it. Uh, we really appreciate your time. We really appreciate your energy, your contribution. Uh, so thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for doing all those things. If you like what you heard and you want to check out the other conversations that we're having, we try and post one of these new ones a week, uh, there or thereabouts. Search up buddhaontheboard.com and you'll find Peripheral Thinking on there with a link to all the conversations, an opportunity to sign up if you haven't already, so we can keep you abreast of the new conversations as they go live. Meantime, thanks for listening. Look forward to hanging with you next time.